1: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss.
2: The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie
3: Friday morning, the 1st of April. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. Heavy fighting continues in Ukraine as the destruction and killing continues. Sanctions against Russia. Are starting to bite. We can
2: and should do more. We need new sanctions against Russia, powerful sanctions until they stop blackmailing other countries with their nuclear missiles. and They have to pay the highest price for blocking the sea. No Russian vessels should be allowed in other international ports. Buying their oil means paying for the destruction of the global security. We have to stop any business activity of Russia. Any dollar should be spent for the destruction of the people. No single dollar for the destruction of the um, global security. And we have to stop any intention of Russia to bypass the sanctions.
3: That's the Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky speaking through an interpreter yesterday to the Australian Parliament. The sanctions against Russia have resulted in the value of its currency plummeting. In response, Russia is now insisting that its gas is paid for in rubles.
4: The Russian government from the early last year started to turn off the gas supply to Europe. And this is where all of us in Europe could be facing into a new crisis because... Europe is now at historic low levels in the storage of gas because of that decision.
3: And Europe could very well stop buying Russian gas, with countries describing the demand for payment in rubles as blackmail. Karen Coleman, editor of Europarl Radio, which reports from the European Parliament for Irish Radio, joins us now. Good morning, Karen. Thanks for joining us on the programme, as always. As Eamon Ryan said there a moment ago, the levels of gas are at historically low levels and if European countries stop buying Russian gas, inevitably there's going to be a problem. Is that what's going to happen, do you think?
5: Well, it's, it's hard to tell ultimately, Michael, what way the EU leaders are going to react now to this latest stunt, if you like, by Vladimir Putin about buying the gas in Russian rubles. Um, it seems to be, it's very convoluted and, and I'm, I'm, I'm struggling to actually fully understand what the implications would be of forcing EU countries or unfriendly countries, as I think Putin is describing them, but to buy the Russian gas in rubles because it, it seems like it's more a political manoeuvre than anything else and it's a way to get around the sanctions and it's forcing EU countries to deal I think with the Russian Central Bank which is sanctioned so hmm. it is extremely convoluted But, but
3: Extremely so central, but I think Germany have said that their reserves are at 25% so <laughs> if they decide not to buy I mean that reserve is obviously going to deplete further
5: Oh, absolutely. And this has been the issue since the start of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, one of the big issues has been whether the supply of gas, particularly to countries like Germany, which has a 40% dependence on Russian gas, what the implications would be. And of course, it's going to, we already mm. are coping with high electrical uh, electricity prices uh, because of other reasons. And, uh, and the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine has only added to that uncertainty. So comp- it, it is going to create ongoing uncertainty about whether or not and um, the eu can rely on russia for its gas supplies now on the other hand um russia won't necessarily want to stop those supplies because it's going to hurt itself economically so they're also dependent on the revenues they get from the eu but i think you know the overriding message here is that the eu has become far too dependent on russia for its supplies mm. of gas primarily and oil it's now rushing to try and come up with a range of ways to get around that dependency to, you know, they the EU issued um, communications last week that they have come up with a, a number of proposals and they are fleshing those proposals out at the moment to come up with um, more solid suggestions or proposals at, by this in April mm. um, to try and come up with different ideas to, to wean itself off its dependency on Russian gas. They include increasing LNG supplies from the US, uh, liquefied natural gas And obviously increasing our um, ways of getting renewable energy supplies as Mm. well but we're not there yet.
3: And there's concern about LNG and fracked gas for that matter Uh, and uh, America has its own problems. Uh, Joe Biden last night talking about uh, the cost of petrol and diesel or gas at the pumps uh, as may be the case in America as a result of uh, the decisions that are being made in terms of the this war. Ireland does not rely on Russian gas, but I don't know if that matters, uh, because uh, while we might get gas from Corrib or from Britain, uh, if there's a shortage across Europe, there's going to be a shortage everywhere. Uh, and If there's uh, any complacency about this, uh, well, maybe eyebrows will be raised reading the Irish Times today says it says the government is discussing contingency plans with industry to organize energy rationing. If the Ukraine war leads to an interruption in supplies of Russian oil and gas into European markets, it could be very serious, couldn't it?
5: It could be, and I don't think that... I I mean, I think you're absolutely right. Just because Ireland may not be reliant on Russia for supplies of, of gas and oil... Um, it doesn't mean we won't be affected. That that would be naive to think that. Um, you know, there was there was a, a, an agreement last week by EU leaders to agree to the joint purchase of natural gas. And I think what we're probably going to see is that the EU collectively will say, well, look, just because maybe a country like Ireland can get its supplies elsewhere, we have to collectively now ensure that the whole of the 27-member uh, bloc mm. will be able to continue this the supply of energy to its people. I think there is no question at the moment that there is going to be a, a, a problem in the short term mm. and that you would think will only lead to an increase in prices in the short term, um, while long term options are realized. Uh, I mean, one good thing out of this, Michael, may be that the push towards cleaner energy sources and renewable energy sources will be accelerated we've been complacent Mm -hmm. we've been able to get our supplies of energy at relatively low prices but that's all changing and we know for climate change there is a real need to start moving ourselves away from fossil fuels but in the short term there are problems. Mm, and in
3: indeed, community. that argument uh, about renewables is exactly the argument that Eamon Ryan was making in uh, the doll yesterday and how this crisis could be an opportunity and exactly the argument that the American President was making when he was talking a- about uh, the increase at the pumps for American motorists. Uh, but uh, it's, uh, it could even be worse than that I think in the short term, Karen, because it's not just a question of prices. If Russian gas is cut off, prices will go up because it's a, a question of supply and demand. And so the more demand there is and the less supply there is, prices go up no matter what you're talking about. But if demand is so great and supply is so little, uh, there could be rationing.
5: Oh, yes, I think there absolutely could be rationing. And we were seeing, we were hearing yesterday, or was it the day before now, uh, the German Chancellor uh, talking about potential rationing of supplies. So, and, and actually at the moment, you could say we're lucky in the sense that it's it's we're coming into the summertime there will be less demand so i think on on energy supplies but but nevertheless coming we're you know a lot of the forward planning is about the winter to come this coming winter and Mm. making sure there are enough energy supplies but i it's hard to see how we're not going to be subject to certainly an increase in prices And potentially a rationing of supplies because this will be trying to ensure that the what what to do if Russia turns off the taps and there's suddenly this, you know, very sudden. Uh, Lack of supply, which could cause a lot of economic pain. So it's about trying to ensure that there's a buffer if that happens. Mm. Um, So, again, it's about the short term. This may be very difficult over potentially the next 12 months. It depends Mm. on what happens now with Ukraine, whether these peace talks between Russia and Ukraine will amount to anything or whether this war is going to drag on and the increasing um petulance, if you like, from mm-hmm. Vladimir Putin and 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 now coming out with things about paying for gas and rubles. He always has the power to turn off the taps to stop the supplies mm-hmm. of gas to, as he calls them, the unfriendly countries that will cause pain for Russia but maybe these are steps he will be prepared to take Let's talk about the friendly
3: countries if we can the countries friendly to Russia or one in particular uh, because there is also the prospect that the war could escalate and we are talking uh, uh, about Uh, circumstance where home heating oil has already doubled in the last year and we're seeing uh, prices in energy increase uh, by 20, 30, 40% over the last few weeks and all of this could get a whole lot worse if China was uh, to give support to Russia uh, in this war, whatever that might mean and indeed that will be the main subject at an EU China summit. Uh, European leaders will meet with Chinese leaders today Uh, And they'll be talking uh, about support or not giving support to Russia, but they'll also be talking about how China has failed to condemn uh, the Russian invasion. Indeed, it doesn't even describe it as an invasion.
5: Yes, this is a virtual summit that's taking place today between China's uh, president and then they'll also the prime minister will also be involved of of China meeting virtually European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen and Council President Charles Michel and of course a whole load of officials as well as you say I mean this wasn't supposed to have been the reason for this uh, summit It was supposed to be more about climate change and biodiversity and health and human rights but of course The Ukrainian, the war in Ukraine will now loom large. Um, And as you said, China has, you know, failed so far to condemn the Russian invasion of Ukraine. In fact, far from it, Mm. China and Russia have been increasing their relations. And many people have been or analysts who know about uh, China-Russia relations have been interpreting Uh, those engagements as more something like an authoritarian move against the West, that this is Russia and China asserting their powers and trying to diminish the powers of the West. Um, And Putin certainly has been developing good relations with the Chinese uh, president. Uh, The last time they met was during the uh, the Winter Beijing Olympics. So uh, certainly China and Russia seem to be you know, strong allies. There is no sense that China is going to come out and condemn the russian invasion of ukraine but from um i think the perspective of the meetings today what the eu will be trying to do is to ensure that china doesn't supply weapons for mm. example to russia That's the big and, fear, and, and really mm-hmm. support it mm. um i don't i think expectations are low michael mm. um about what the outcome of these meetings um but i i would imagine what eu what the EU side will be trying to do is keep China on board, Mm. not increase any hostilities between the EU and China, and in some way or another appeal to China to lean on Russia. But whether that's going to happen or not is debatable, because it does seem to be the case that China and Russia mm-hmm. are really building a strong alliance with one another at the moment Well,
3: if China allies itself uh, with Russia, I suppose there's a, a number of scenarios uh, that uh, could stem from that none of them are particularly good In the worst case scenario uh, we could be uh, talking a, about a world war, there's been this talk of the nuclear threat whether that's attacks on power plants or nuclear missiles throughout uh, China supporting Russia I don't know might up the ante and there is the prospect worst case scenario of them blowing us all to Kingdom Come Karen but uh, it'll still be bad even if it doesn't get as bad as that because we're talking about the price of oil and gas uh, and possibly food shortages across Europe as things stand. Uh, China of course is a huge trading partner with uh, the EU uh, and I think there's imports and exports worth around 600 billion euro every year so this could make a a bad situation a whole lot worse.
5: Yeah, China actually is the EU's biggest trading partner as far as I know so I mean, it definitely, at the same time, it's in China's interest to continue that trade. But I think this this incredibly destabilizing situation has shown us all from a Western perspective. And that's how we look at this. I mean, obviously, China and Russia and the, and, and many of the people there, they look at it differently. And I think one of the big things for me, one of the... I think very interesting issues from all of this is how different we are looking at this situation from our perspective. We look at it very much from a Western view, from maybe a liberal democratic view. But a lot of people in Russia look at it very differently and they see the West as the aggressors. And I mean, absolutely, China, you know, one of the big things, too, that has emerged is how dependent the EU has been on Chinese imports. This also was relevant during the COVID pandemic. We realized How many of our vital medicine supplies come from outside the EU? And there's been a greater push for the EU to become more independent. But China is a massive, massive force, um, as Russia has been. I mean, this in the Mm. biggest geopolitical sense. So you get a sense that the tectonic plates from a geopolitical perspective are shifting. But to what extent will that they pivot the access towards a more dominance from we'll say less liberal democratic forces we don't know it and and this is why i think you know i think the eu leaders and and the commission president today will be very mindful of the fact that they can't go in all guns blazing this is about being diplomatic it's about trying to keep china on board it's i mean obviously at the moment relations with Russia are extremely tense. Hmm. You would think that the last thing the EU needs and the West needs is to create further tensions, to put the, the backs of the Chinese leaders up against the wall. It's important to keep them on board. And at the same time, China will be realising how important its its trade is with the EU as well. So okay. um, that's why I don't yeah. think much will be achieved today, yeah. but just keep relations going will probably be the most important thing.
3: All right, Karen, we leave it there. Thank you very much for joining us Uh, this morning. Karen Coleman is uh, the editor with EuroParl Radio, which reports uh, from the European Parliament for Irish radio stations.
6: Michael Michael Reid Reid on on LMFM.
3: Now, there's never a bad day to visit Omead, but I think it's true to say that the Minister for Local Government and Planning, Peter Burke, has picked a great day to visit Omid because of uh, the clear skies and uh, the unbeatable views that will be seen as a result of the clear skies today. The Minister is on the line with us. And a very good morning to you, Minister Burke, and thanks uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. You're in Omid uh, for the sod-turning of the wastewater treatment plant. This is a significant uh, investment in OMid and part of uh, a number of uh, strands of government funding which will see OMid being transformed over the coming years.
7: Good morning, Michael, and to your listeners. Yes, this is a very significant investment by the government in the wastewater treatment plant. It's over €11 million of a capital budget. And really what we're trying to do is secure the future development of the area by underwriting it with a top-class wastewater facility. And we see so many areas as we go around the country in terms of infrastructure deficits. And that's why we have such a substantial capital budget now trying to rectify this to ensure that you can have plan-led sustainable development into the future and Omid would be key to unlocking that as part of the government strategy.
3: And no doubt it, it'll be needed uh, because uh, there'll be a lot more people living there and visiting there when five million is spent developing the village and uh, indeed uh, when eventually, if it does ever happen, the narrow water bridge opens.
7: Absolutely. So there are very exciting plans by uh, Loud County Council and I'll be meeting the management team there this morning as well to go through all the areas that are within the responsibility of our department and the progress that has been made. And I know it can be obviously very frustrating for people in the housing arena, but there is definite progress being made by Loud County Council. And you can see that bared out in the evidence by a reduction of 50% in the the social housing list. So there's huge progress being made there and a lot more to do in the uh, years ahead.
3: OK, well, uh, you're in, County Loud, Minister, um, for the day. Uh, you'll go on from Omid to Dundalk. Tell us a little bit uh, about uh, where you'll be visiting over the course of uh, the morning and into this afternoon.
7: Yes, I'm meeting colleagues uh, in Dundalk. Senator John McGahan has a number of events he wants me to uh, have a look at. In the first instance, we have um, Cox's Phase 2B in Dundalk, and that's 22 units. complete, about a budget of €6 million. And again, they are A2 rated housing, and that's one of the items that I'm really impressed with going around the country, the quality of the stock that's been delivered by the local authorities and the approved housing bodies for people and for families. Then we're obviously going to uh, Holiday Mills, again which is a vacant site, and now has an 85 uh, unit development. That was a capital cost of £21 was tenanted in January, and that's again another good example in terms of the local authority working with uh, a cooperative housing body, trying to deliver at scale units and bringing derelict sites back into use, bringing new life into them. Mm, and yeah. that's going to be key through Cree Corner, a new fund, a half a billion euro fund we have that, that will be operational from July this year. Well,
3: that'll be most welcome. People that may not know the name Halliday Mills as well as uh, they'll remember the name Ard Dalgan, which uh, was, of course, uh, the Priory Hall of uh, Dundalk and. Uh, Perfect apartments, it seemed, that people had to move out of, went derelict, uh, became uh, an antisocial hub, was set on fire, arsonists uh, a number of times. But all of that being turned uh, around uh, and you'll be there to see firsthand uh, what has uh, happened in the interim.
7: Absolutely, and that's why in government now we're really focusing on prioritising vacancy and dereliction and a lot of those schemes that needed remedial action uh, over a very difficult period. And we're improving the building regulations in that regard too and also we're bringing in legislation which hopefully will be in law before the summer to require builders to register for competence on a statutory register which again will give consumer protection and assurance and confidence uh, into the future
3: yeah well it was a, an eyesore at best uh, and it, it was dangerous uh, i suppose uh, at worst and certainly of uh, great concern to people so it is great that it has uh, been turned around but there's many derelict sites uh, around uh, the country minister and um, If it can be done there can it be done elsewhere and how quickly can it be done because we're facing into a huge demand for housing with uh, all of uh, the refugees uh, that are expected to come to the country from ukraine
7: absolutely and we have a number of things we're working on in the department to really unlock the potential that's in derelict properties. We will, by quarter two this year, now have a vacant homes office in every single local authority. Mm. Heretofore, there was only three local authorities who had a full-time vacant homes officer, and tasks were being shared with other services within the local authority, which mm. meant it just wasn't prioritised. And then through towns, first we're going to have our town regeneration officer, which will be in situ in every single local authority. And they will be drawing together all the capital yeah. investment programmes.
3: But that won't be enough, to Minister, to obviously, given the crisis that we're facing into, given that there's already been 10,000 people on the social housing waiting list and we're expecting up to as many as 200,000 refugees. We're talking about housing people in tents in Gormanston, now, which is unthinkable. Uh, but given the scale of the crisis, that's the reality of it. We're going to need some emergency action here. Uh, will there be changes to the planning laws, do you expect?
7: Absolutely. So if we really there will Yes, there will. If if we really think about what we're doing here, we're trying to plan for a 1% increase in population, potentially over a three-month period. And that is hugely significant on any system Mm. uh, in the world. So we have significant powers through, in the first instance, the Syrian refugee crisis, which we responded to as a state by changing the planning code. And also uh, in terms of the accommodation through uh, COVID measures that we had, emergency powers that we can use in terms of planning exemptions to bring older properties into use. They are all there ready to be utilised and I know And uh, the yeah. Department of Children is leading the initial response our department will be focusing with the local authorities over the medium to longer term response yeah. to get secure accommodation It could
3: be a lot more than that uh, if 200,000 uh, people arrive you're talking about a 4% increase in population what if that is the case?
7: Yeah, I know 100,000 is currently the projections uh, within the department, the latest I have seen. But if that is the case, obviously we have to respond as best we can as a state. But it will put our services under pressure. I think people have to be honest about that. We can't expect, you know, a magic wand, Hmm. say if you're increasing your population by 1% or 2%, then immediately you can have all the services, all the infrastructure and all the accommodation.
3: Do you expect women and children to be sleeping in tents, though, in Gormanston? I
7: don't. No, I do not. Uh, Absolutely not. Uh, And I haven't heard where that's coming from because I know... We're going right around the country. In the first instance, we have 2,500 beds and accommodation in hotel rooms sourced. We're looking at the next phase where we expect to have around uh, 3,000 accommodation within the next uh, 14 mm. uh, days uh, in the first initial phase. And we've also been through and had a huge amount of offers from the public uh, through the Red Cross portal. And What we're doing with that is we're dividing it into where units are vacant because obviously we have to mm. be careful... Between vetting and child protection issues. So the vacant ones will be using quite quickly. And then, obviously, in terms of people who wish to take uh, citizens from Ukraine into their families, okay. uh, we'll obviously have to go through a process to just, just, that
3: all that. Is just occurring. in terms of where it's coming from, uh, both Roderick O'Gorman and Michal Martin uh, said in uh, The Doll the day before yesterday that uh, uh, as. Far from ideal as it may be, it uh, could very well be necessary, uh, according to the Minister and uh, the Taoiseach. uh, But uh, you don't believe that that will be the case. Uh, You'll also be in Clambrassel Street today as well, Minister. Tell us uh, about your visit to the Community Working Hub.
7: Yeah, I think that's very important post-Covid. Obviously, we're trying to see a more blended working strategy where you have people having the option Uh, to work from home, even if it's only for a few days a week. And that obviously improves quality of life. And to underwrite that, we have huge budgets from both the Department of Enterprise Trade and Employment and uh, Community and Rural Affairs trying to deliver, uh, you know, quality e-working hubs right around the country. I've seen a number of them, very impressed by them. So I'm looking forward to seeing this one in the dock. And that's the strategy the government is putting more money behind.
3: Okay, Minister. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us. Uh, Enjoyed the views. Great morning to be here. Thank you very much indeed. That's uh, Peter Burke, who's Minister of State with responsibility for local government and planning. Michael, Michael Reed on LMFM. Thanks uh, to Ray and Dulik, who says uh, that uh, the Chinese currency is artificially low and the only way for Europe uh, to compete is to use tariffs. Uh, call to us uh, from Martin and Navin, who says uh, the less that we have to do with Russia, the better. And if we have to take some pain because of it, then so be it. Asking countries to pay for their gas with rubles. Well, Putin has some cheek, Martin says. Who would want to deal with that man when he's killing innocent civilians? and children in Ukraine. Europe needs to get its act together and not be so dependent on him and on Russia. Thank you indeed if you have been in touch with us so far today. Now, if you take the number eight bus to work or something similar to that, here's some advice for you from the World Health Organization.
2: Depending on the, country, the strategy the countries had before in terms of the level of exposure their population has had uh, opening up rapidly uh, and removing all restrictions almost definitely results in a rebound uh, in infections. The question is what impact that rebound will have. Um, we've seen the impact that the uh, sublineage ba 2 has had in Asia and its increased transmissibility. And we've, we're seeing now, I think, some increased pressure in health systems in Europe because of that uh, virus uh, having that extra degree of transmissibility. Um, and a lot of reinfections. So even in the context of this being milder in terms of the population being protected more, there's still a chance that there can be pressure in the health system. So each and every government has to look at that. They have to make some choices around that and what they advise people to do. What we hope governments aren't doing is passing back that individual responsibility. Onto individuals and, and, and not supporting people who want to continue taking, uh, taking precautions, particularly people themselves who may be vulnerable. But certainly, from my own personal perspective, I will continue to, to wear my mask on the number eight bus uh, when I'm coming to work. Uh, and I think each and every person has to make their own decision regarding their risk and, and their exposure and potentially their uh, chance of exposing others. So, um, Maria may wish to comment uh, in more specifically. But again, we caution governments to be very careful to lift uh, restrictions smoothly, gradually, step by step and in accordance with the capacity of the health system to cope with any rebound in infection.
3: Now, let's speak uh, to Dr. Mary Scully, GP with uh, the Abbey House Medical Centre in Navin. Good morning to you, Dr. Scully, and thanks for joining us. Dr. Mike Ryan of the World Health Organization saying there that he'd wear his mask on the number eight bus to work. Would you?
0: Absolutely, I would. Um, I think the last time we spoke was just at the time the restrictions were being lifted. And I did say COVID hasn't gone away. And for anybody that is vulnerable, you should continue to wear your mask. And unfortunately, Mike Ryan's advice could be exactly specific to Ireland because we did exactly what he told us not to do, which was to lift all restrictions just suddenly. And now we're seeing the effects of that on the health system. Mm. Um, I don't know if your listeners are aware, but I can tell you that I've been out for the last week um, with COVID because it's ripping through our practice like a a rate of knots. Um, I'm about to I think the 14th person in our practice to get it. And that's after two years of being completely clear uh, where we're being so careful and now, there
3: we are. I can hear from your voice you're surprised that you've caught it. You've obviously been doing everything and anything possible to avoid it.
0: Absolutely. I was I mean I was absolutely sure I wasn't going to get it. Never going anywhere wearing masks all the time. Um you know so last Thursday a week ago yesterday when I got a little bit of a tickle in my throat I said it's hardly covid but I did the test, and sure enough. So, um, But, mm. you know, it hasn't been too bad. This BA2 variant actually isn't terrible. So, actually, I've been able to work from home doing telephone consultations all week. Yep. Um, so it hasn't been terrible. I haven't been really sick with it. So, I don't know. I think maybe that's the government's ploy, is just to let it spread through the population and get one big whack of it. And then, hopefully, the numbers will start to reduce But it's how well the health systems are coping while Mm. we're trying to get through this big um, surge is is the difficult bit.
3: That's it, uh, because um, the health service has to isolate people if they're in hospital with uh, uh, needing a a hip replacement or they've had a heart attack um, and they have COVID, they can't be with other patients and that brings Mm. on all sorts of pressures. And then you've got staff uh, out of work, uh, as you say. How many did you say? 14 in your practice?
0: We've had 14 out in in the last two weeks.
3: Right. Okay. So, I mean, you uh, compare that to a hospital uh, and you you soon see why there's, what is it, six or 7,000 people are out at the moment. Um, And they're the kind of problems that the health service is facing. So COVID may not be the serious threat to individuals' health as it once was, but it's causing big problems in itself. Why is it that we're not told we have to wear masks in certain places? Or or to put that another way, why is it an advisory to wear them in healthcare settings on buses? Uh, if the Taoiseach says, on the other hand, uh, that if it was mandatory, it wouldn't do anything to bring down the numbers.
0: I know, it doesn't really make an awful lot of sense. I suppose in healthcare settings you've got a different cohort of patients patients who are generally unwell because that's why they're there in the first place so you kind of really don't want you know unwell and frail and mm. uh, sick patients to be getting it so that's i suppose the reason for that
3: yeah because um, the masks uh, will help to stop spread it
0: yeah and know masks <laughs> do stop the spread i mean yeah. i've been even in my own house um i have been wearing a mask all week. And, you know, interestingly, um, my husband, who's been sharing the house, even if not the same room, uh, has not um, tested positive so Mm. far. So, you know, masks do work. Um, And it's really important that anybody who has any medical vulnerabilities should still be continuing to wear masks, never mind what the government is saying.
3: Mm. And certainly on the number eight bus or anywhere that's crowded.
0: (laughs) Anywhere that's crowded, basically. Even a crowded shop or shopping centre, you know, you should still be continuing to wear your mask. I mean, it's Mm. absolutely rampant at the moment. The numbers are enormous. And we don't really know because we've obviously stop testing everybody and yeah. that um, has symptoms and a lot of people aren't registering for mm. antigen tests on the H- on the HSE well, website. Uh, as the minister no said, ideas.
3: hundreds of thousands a week. The minister yeah. himself, Steve Donnelly, got COVID. Helen McEntee, another minister, got it for a second time. Uh, Leo Bradger, the Taoiseach, had it. The shock yeah. had it. Uh, it's rampant. It's everywhere. But, uh, we're at the peak apparently, uh, uh, and uh, we're on the right way uh, out on the other side. Chief Medical Officer Dr. Tony Houlihan is uh, telling the government to consider shortening the isolation period of seven yeah. days. As a result, are you are you surprised to see that?
0: I am surprised to see that. I've been doing antigen tests myself daily, and I'm on day nine now, um, uh, if you count Thursday, day one. um, And my antigen test, even though it's much fainter today than it has been, it's still positive. And, you know, if your antigen test is positive, that means you have, you know, virus in your nose, and your throat, and you're still going to be contagious. So, you know, on day five I was certainly very positive indeed. And so, you know, shortening the the, time that you have to isolate for does not really make an awful lot of sense unless you actually want this virus to spread through the population and just get it over and done with, which seems to be uh, an unsaid policy at the moment.
3: Mm. Okay, Uh, and is it a prudent policy?
0: Um, You know, there are arguments for and against it. I mean, you know, everybody is totally sick of COVID at this stage. Mm. We've had two years of it Uh, This virus variant, BA2, is much milder and I mean, to me, it was like just having uh, you know a head cold for the week and, and feeling a bit off form. It wasn't terrible in any means. So, if you're going to pick a time to do it, then I suppose this is the time to do it. So, you know, you can see that there's an argument for yeah. for, for getting uh, getting through it. Um, but and
3: it seems to be the experience even in the nursing homes. Uh, I mean, there's been over 300 outbreaks in nursing homes, but residents aren't particularly sick like that. They're reporting <laughs> the likes of head colds or maybe a little bit worse, but not the type. of threat to life that COVID was?
0: No, no, the Delta variant that was around, first of all, um, you know, was definitely much more severe, caused, you know, much more chest symptoms, much more inflammation in the chest and pneumonias, whereas this seems to be more, BA 2 seems to be more just like a head cold, it's in Mm. your nose, it's in your throat, but not really down in your chest. So, you know, there is an argument, I suppose, for just kind of letting this variant, you know, go through the population and Boost everybody's immunity, hopefully, um, so that if another more severe variant turns up, that hopefully it won't be as bad.
3: Okay. Well, Mm. I'm glad to hear you sound so well and (laughs) nice to talk to you. And thank you for joining us (laughs) this morning. Thank you very much indeed. That's Dr. Mary Scully, a GP with Abbey House Medical Centre in Navan.
6: Michael Michael Reed on on LMFM.
3: Now to a remarkable story that started on a small island off the west coast of Ireland three years ago that has just come to the attention of people all over the world because of an article that was published in the New York Times last week. Nuala O'Hagan is a sheep farmer on a small island that's located about a kilometre off the coast of Galway City. Nuala has been running a farm there with her husband Rory since 2003. Things changed for the family three years years ago, though, when their daughter became a vegetarian. Nula and Rory put their heads together to devise a new and innovative method of breeding sheep. The headline last week in the New York Times can lamb be vegetarian if the animal is not slaughtered, has caught the attention of people far and wide, and the story appears today in all of the Irish newspapers. Earlier I spoke to Nuala, and she told me that this story took off when New York Times journalist Killian da Vinci visited the island in February, and he was trying to trace his Irish roots. Oh yeah,
1: this it came, came out to the island wonder. The um, one of the neighbours, and uh, sure I didn't know who it was. Killian uh, Da Vinci or something his name was, and he came up and he was asking us about the the lambs out there, the ants in the fields, and uh, why did they have the three legs? Right. Uh, I told him the story anyway, and he uh, he was fascinated. Mm. He's from some newspaper. He says. Oh, he's huge! America.
3: Yeah, huge! Uh, one of the biggest newspapers in the world, the New York Times. You, you didn't realise that he was a big no. journalist.
1: No, he says he was a journalist, all right. But
5: sure, I mean,
3: what would I know about New York? Okay, right. Yeah. Well, he, he took big interest in, in your lambs, and he's written a big story about it, and it's got the attention of people all over the world. Uh, tell us about your lambs, if you would, please, Nola.
1: Yes, yeah, sure. I was mortified when I heard it. I thought, Jesus. But anyway, um the lands anyway. It's a long old story. Yeah. Um it's not very well known except for on the island, I suppose. Right. Um, and we daughter there. Um she went off to college there about four three or four years ago with her friend. The two of them went off, they wanted to be nurses. Mm. So they went off to the mainland. And uh, that was grand, they were doing fine anyway, but they came back anyway. They come back like for the holidays, and you know, but they were there anyway. One Easter, and I had the, I had the old like, lamb on the table, and you know, she always loved the old meat, meat and spuds. Yeah. That's what we were there, yeah. and um, she started crying. She wouldn't eat the lamb. We didn't know what the hell was wrong with her. So she told us anyway that she wasn't going to be eating meat anymore when she came home because she was becoming one of these um. What you call them, vegetarians. This right. Is vegetarian,
3: mm. yeah. yeah, yeah. A lot of vegetarians yes. around these days, of course. Uh, but this would be unusual for you and your family. Uh, and this is the traditional Easter dinner. So it came as a bit of a shock to you.
1: Every year since she was born, she was having it. And the same with the, the young ones on the road. I don't know what got into them. But mm. anyway, there was war at the table. My husband, Bassy, he went off the head. Why wasn't she eating the meat? She was only eating the puds. Hmm. So anyway, she explained to us and shut out. I didn't know what to do. Um, my son left the table. He went off out on the bicycle. He wouldn't come back. There was, it was an awful day. So anyway, she explained it to us and told us what it was all about. Cruelty and all this.
8: Yeah.
1: Mm. So we kind of listened to her and understood her. So that was about three or four years ago. So we decided then we went out to the when they went back to college, we went down to the neighbours and were talking, but we couldn't understand it. But we were trying to think of a way around it, you know, yeah. because she mm. upset herself the poor creature like.
3: Yeah, well there's a lot of people like that I think, yeah.
1: Yeah. So mm. we came up with this thing, um and uh, you know, we spent a lot of time on it. Um, you know, is there any way that she could have a bit of the lamb at Easter uh without having to kill the lamb? Mm. So we decided then uh, that we'd give it a go. I don't know whether you remember a long time ago there was problems with lambs when they were born. Where they weren't able to stand up on their back legs. Oh, and uh, But anyway, you know, they were doing kind of, they didn't know what was wrong with the lambs. Mm. Um, but in the end anyway, they took a leg or two, off a couple of the, of the lambs, and they were well able to go after that. So oh. mm. thinking then, if, like if we only took one leg off right. the lamb, um, and the lamb then, should, they're so young, you know how they're bouncing around, they're so young, they be up at it. Right. So we did a research around the island, and a few of us came together and said we'd try and, and, and see what we could do. So my mm. sister-in-law, well, well her husband is a surgeon, you see. So we were checking him out and seeing what the story was. He wasn't a bit in favour of it anyway. So um, we had to go back into the drawing board. But anyway, sure, one of the lads then came up from the other side of the island and said he'd give it a go if he got a bit of advice. So we tried it on one lamb. We put him to sleep. And um, we just... Uh, took off the leg.
3: Yeah well, you, it, you, amputa- you amputated the leg.
1: Yeah, we did, yeah. Right. No, there was a a, a vest there.
3: Sur- surgically amputated the leg. leg. Yeah.
1: Right. Said the lamb was put to sleep and yeah. we were what what can we do now? Right. Uh, so we were waiting and waiting anyway, but the lamb woke up after about four hours mm. and what did he do? He jumped up on the three legs and started walking. Right. So we said, Jesus, Mary and Joseph, this is the way around it. Right. So we watched the lamb anyway, and he went out into the field, and now he, he was walking, but he was walking slow. Mm. But after a couple of weeks, sure, he may as well have had the four legs.
3: Right. Brilliant. So so, so what did you do with the lamb, that, or with the leg that you amputated off of the lamb?
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, sir.
3: Oh, right.
1: So we did, and the lamb is still alive. And this vegetarian thing, I mean, I, we thought it was a great idea. Yeah. But we said we'd better keep it to ourselves until we know for sure, you know, that it's our branch. Sure, like, I mean, my daughter is happy now. We've been doing it now for the last couple of years with the lambs. She, and, she,
3: she's uh, eating the leg of lamb.
1: Eating the lamb now. She'll have the lamb.
3: And does she still call herself a vegetarian?
1: Well, you see, the thing is, like, the lamb, she can look out and see the lamb in the field, she's
3: still alive. Right. So, the
1: lamb has no idea that he only has three legs.
3: And This kind of explains didn't. the headline in the New York Times, and it's the headline that caught everybody's attention. Can lamb be vegetarian if the animal isn't slaughtered? Uh, and that's what you're saying uh-huh. you've done. You left them with three legs, and you've had the traditional Easter leg of lamb for dinner
1: we did and it was lovely and it has been lovely and a few now it's only a small little island hmm. but, but a lot of them were skeptical but they're they're back now and you know they're all on for it the lands are jumping around right. they're like or whatever you call them, they're happy. Right, so I'm it, sure we're all happy as right.
3: well. And, and you've been doing this for a, a few years. Uh, I suppose nobody uh, ever heard of it before until the New York Times got hold of it. It's in all of the Irish newspapers today. I don't,
1: I don't, I don't believe you. I, should that fellow back him over, he,
3: was, he never said. He was from New York. Right. Uh, and um, what kind of feedback have you been getting? Have you heard from people about this? Are people interested in it or...?
1: Um, well, we kind of we we kept it to ourselves because we didn't know what we were getting into at the time, you know. Um, so there's a few people on the mainland that know about us and mm. they're very interested in it. But you see, it's only a small little island, and we don't want we don't want boats coming over looking at the land, you right. know.
3: Yeah. Mm.
1: That wouldn't be our thing at all. Mm. I mean, there's COVID or on this island now, Mike. You know, we'd be wanting people to come in. We have our own little
3: life here. Mm. it's very unusual.
1: Yeah, I think it's a great idea, but I, I don't know now about it being in all the papers.
3: Mm. <laughs> it's in all of the papers today. Uh, you haven't been getting calls from anybody, have you, uh, about how you go about doing this?
1: Well, I'm sure I have, but I'm outside most of the day.
3: I'll have to check. I'll have to wait for a young one. Okay, I have a feeling we're going to hear more about it. It's very, very unusual. Uh, But thanks for telling us about it. Uh, You've become a worldwide phenomenon. I think the story has actually gone viral on the the internet.
1: It'll ruin the island.
3: Okay, yeah. Well, it's gone viral, apparently.
1: Thanks for yourself now. Okay. Um, but it's a great idea, I think. It's a guy don't understand these people that were raised on meat and fish, and now they won't look at the meat. What's well, wrong with
3: it? It's the first time I've heard heard of vegetarians nuts, eating it's meat.
1: not So what for you?
3: Okay, Nuala, I have to leave it there. But thank you very much all indeed. On. All right. Good night.
1: Thanks very much. Keep the oh, care okay. okay. Bye-bye. 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 Bye-bye.
3: Nuala O'Hagan, a sheep farmer on a small island off the west coast of Ireland, about a kilometre from Galway City, speaking to me a little bit earlier today.
6: Michael, Michael Reid on, on LMFM. FM.
3: The cost of living is through the roof. Is the government doing enough to help people? Well, Sinn Féin says it's not. We
9: have sought uh, a derogation in respect of the application of the rules around the VAT directive and the energy tax directive, which covers excise, and basically we've thought that if we reduce our VAT rate, um, because we have historical der- derogation already, we've wanted of the lower rates on energy at the moment uh, uh, in terms of that 13.5. If we bring that down. Just here. No, I, I don't think we should go to zero. But if we did bring it down, we'd go back up to 23% under the existing rules. And I've been saying this to you for two or three months, so has the Minister for Finance. I'm not nine. stupid. And you're well I'm aware when, of that. When. Yes, but you're correct. You're, you're well aware so of answer it. The and questions. you should know that. And therefore, we have been seeking from the Commission... What? ...a change in the application of those rules, a temporary derogation from those rules, so that we could we'll give so ourselves and other states flexibility in terms of the application mm-hmm. and that. No, could I, or indeed... Uh, excise duties. In terms of home heating on, it's carbon tax is there at the moment with uh, VAT. Those are your two options. Now, you're technically using different terms, deliberately to Revenue, avoid... Revenue is that term. You politically want to avoid the charge, that you I, want, I, the you, want to... get rid you, of the oh, No, no, I'm tax. avoiding that's nothing. that's what it means. Well, we that on. said, we want flexibility on the, the bad side that we're of the it. And, we're and, and, but I would we're make time. this point thank if you. I could. You're right in saying this is going to go right through to the end of the year. And that's how government have to react here. We can't every single week... We're bringing in we separate measures. We have to prepare for Start the, the medium term no in fair terms you. of in managing the economy
3: properly. We'll the shock and uh, Mary Lou MacDonald uh, going at each other in uh, the doll on Wednesday. Let's speak uh, to local Sinn Féin TD, Johnny Girk. Good morning to you and thanks uh, indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. What is it that Sinn Féin want the government to do?
10: Good morning, Michael. How are you? Uh, just, could I just say, Michael, first, um, in my time, Michael, involved in, in, in politics or, or or even in in years and years, I, I have never seen, Michael's people under so much pressure and, and, you know, so many people, Michael, at breaking point. But you talked there, Michael, about um, the derogation from Europe. Michael, Sinn Féin has been talking to the government about this, Michael, for months and months and months. It, it, this came up in the doll yesterday with Pierre Doherty as well. It's only two weeks ago... Um, Pascal Donoghue wrote to Europe looking for a, der- uh, a derogation on VAT from Europe. Um, Michael, two weeks ago, like, and we in this crisis for months and months and months. The other thing, Michael, they've, are, they've announced... Uh, do you want
3: the government to act unilaterally? Uh, do you want the government uh, to abolish VAT? Because that's what Mary Lou MacDonald was saying last week.
10: Well, we, we, we are saying, Michael, that they may not be able to do it without Europe. But why? why, why on well, well, Mary we
3: MacDonald to... was calling on the Taoiseach to abolish VAT last week.
10: Yeah, well, what I'm saying to you now, Michael, is that two weeks ago, Michael and um, um, Pascal got back to Pierce Doherty yesterday, saying was when he wrote to Europe asking for a derogation on VAT. Now, Michael, this crisis is going on. Well, I'm sure
3: every finance minister across Europe is doing the same thing. When you look at the crisis that we're all facing, uh, there's. An unbelievable uh, amount of problems uh, that emanate uh, from this war. Sea freight uh, routes uh, have uh, been affected. Wholesale oil prices are up 40%. Gas is up 60%. The price of oil went from $96 on the 23rd of February, the Taoiseach said, to 114 euro or dollars on Wednesday. I mean, what do you do when it keeps changing like that?
10: Yeah, well, some things you can do, Michael. Like, um, you look at the energy companies; they're going to put up um, electricity by twenty-four percent in the next month. That energy made a profit, Michael, of six hundred and eighty million. Last year. Now, Eamon Ryan said in today's paper in Irish times that um, he was going to talk to them and ask them to give the lowest price possible. Why is that not done before now, Michael? Why, why wait now until people are on their knees uh, when 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 they're they're calling us up, Michael, crying on the phone that they they're not um, they have to choose between food and heat? I went into a grocery store yesterday. Michael. So
3: so 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 that's what you want now. You you want. Um, because I don't think Sinn Féin has mentioned that before now uh, you've been talking about abolishing VAT on uh, the price of energy
10: No Michael, um came up yesterday, Michael, again in the Dáil, Michael, that um, uh, Pierce already asked Eamon Ryan, why had he not went to the, uh, energy companies that may, that's making massive profits and asking them, they're putting up, Michael, 24%. Mm. That one increase, Michael, is going to bring in for energy uh, in, in, in electricity without gas is going to bring in £330 to They have 1.1 million customers mm. uh, for course, electricity. But
3: their costs uh, have uh, gone through the roof, which is the problem that all of Europe is facing. There may not be gas. Uh, As time goes on, uh, if Russia cuts off uh, the supply, the problem with the VAT that the government has been trying to explain for a long period of time is that at the moment it's 13%. If you reduce it and then have to bring it back up, which would be the case, it would go up to 23% and people would really be in trouble then.
10: But, Michael, that's the idea of writing to Europe for a derogation on VAT, it, 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 so as that wouldn't happen. That's why That's why um, Pascal Donoghue wrote to Europe, was so as that wouldn't happen. But, Michael, why did he wait until two weeks ago to do it? You know, like that should have been done, Michael. Uh, like, you know, we, we, we're talking to people, like a fill of oil, Michael, has went up over 1,000 euros, to, well over 200% in the last year. You know, p- people are on their knees, Michael, and I tell you, they need they need help, Michael. We can find money, we can find 65 billion for banks, we can find 30 billion for for COVID crisis, we can surely to God we can find two 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 two, two billion uh, to start with now to bring people out and uh, um, help people.
3: Okay, uh, and uh, what if it gets more expensive? Uh, another two billion, or what do we do? Well, where Michael, and where, to, where do we get the two billion from?
10: But, well, Michael, you, you, Michael, I tell you, um, Michael, um, like factory revenues are, are supposed to be higher than they were last year. Um, we we said Michael that um, that. Um, th- if, you dis- if, if we set up, Michael, um, increase uh, social welfare rates by an additional uh, 217, all this, Michael, will, Sinn Féin uh, uh, has said that this will cost £1.4
3: um, Michael. Mm. But so, nobody can cost these things now because if you're going to increase social welfare rates, you've got to add, I don't know, 20,000 people, 100,000 people, 200,000 people to that.
10: Yeah, but Michael, what's the alternative, Michael? At the, at the moment, Michael, um, the alternative is, Michael, that you're going to drive people into uh, mortgage distress, you're going to drive them into um, rent distress. Michael, mm. I've been talking to people there yesterday, Michael, that uh, that they're not going to be able to pay their rents, they're not going to be able to pay the mortgage, so they're going to go into distress here. So then you're going to have banks moving in on these houses, Michael. Um, like, surely that we can help our own people, Michael, when the need is most, this is an emergency, it's a crisis, Michael, and I'll tell you, we're dealing with it every single day
3: in, mm. Yeah, well, it's never been harder, and it's across the board, isn't it?
10: Well, Michael, like, it's not us saying it, Michael. Look at St. Vincent de Paul. I listened to the CEO of Alone on your programme yesterday morning. Peter McFerry is saying it. All charity organisations, there's there's small charities in Mead there, Michael, who help the the needy. They're they're making up um, hundreds and hundreds of hampers um, for needy people in Mead, Michael, that they didn't have to do it before,
3: you Mm. know? Well I I know uh, and we're looking at uh, possibly uh, an energy crisis, uh, an energy shortage, uh, a shortage of fuel and so on and a a food shortage at at that and uh, things could get quite uh, tough, Uh, you might think they're tough at the moment but they could get a whole lot tougher Uh, and there's the very real prospect uh, as well uh, because you're talking about uh, these bills pushing people over the edge and them not being able to afford their mortgage, their mortgage repayments could increase quite dramatically in the coming months uh, as well.
10: The could, Michael. Yeah, um, every, every, everything is increasing, you know. But like, um, I know, Michael, that the government can't do everything, but they can do they can do certain things, Michael. You 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 look at today now, uh, energy in a time of crisis, Michael. Uh, Eamon Ryan has to go to energy and ask them, uh, can they give people the lowest price possible? Why wait till now, Michael? We're, we're into um, today is the first of April, Michael, and and we didn't even give back the two hundred euro electricity. Really. Well,
3: you wouldn't be particularly optimistic that that's going to happen, is it? would you? I mean, uh, the the prices are agreed or set by the regulator uh, and uh, you're talking about a commercial company that's in the business of profit uh, and is facing uh, a huge increase in sourcing uh, its energy so obviously it needs to pass that on uh, and uh, without... uh, being told to do it. There's no point in asking these companies to do it, is there?
10: Well, Michael, you can tell them to do it, can you? You know, uh, tell them to do it. Michael, you look at the other other electricity, prepaid power, their, their prices are just going to go up by 10% and gas by 20%. Now, prepaid power, Mike, is, is, um Pay as you go meters, and and it's mostly um, low income people that's on these prepayment meters. Like, where's that going to push them, Michael? It's going to push them into into more poverty, and they're going to be you'll be dealing with homelessness, Mike. It'll cost mm-hmm. the state an awful lot more money down the road, Michael, If we don't give them a little bit of help now.
3: Well, we have given them a little bit of help. I mean, this is the point the government is making, and I understand what you're saying, Johnny. And I'm not arguing with you. I mean, we all know how difficult it is and how expensive everything has become. But the government has made two billion euro available, you're saying another two billion and I suppose the point that I'd be making to you is that uh, you could continue down that road, it seems as things stand, for a very long time to come
10: yeah, well, like Michael, um, and even the government has admitted it to, in today's paper. There that they're going to need more measures, Michael, to deal with this. But Aman Ryan is talking about weeks, Michael. Like it's now, it's now, Michael. The people need it. Like you know, the, the um, energy costs are at the highest um, now. Like it, they may get a little bit less as you come into the summer, but it's today, Michael, that the people that I'm dealing with and talking to every day that need help, Michael. Yeah, it's not.
3: It's well, not how a, much more are we going to need for social welfare with the refugees? How much more are we going to need for the health service? when we give all of those refugees medical cards? How much more are we going to need for education when the refugee children uh, need to go to school uh, and need teachers to stand in front of a classroom? How much are we going to need for language supports? Because the vast majority of Ukrainians don't speak English. I imagine most of the people who have come to this country so far do. But that's circumstantial. As the numbers grow, that's going to change and you're going to need an awful lot of people who will not be able to speak a word of English, to be taught English. And the issues and the challenges go on and on and on, do they not? to do,
10: Michael, yeah. and, and, and it's sometimes, Michael, it's about choices, Michael. Since I went into the Dáil, Michael, um, we've got several pay increases. Simple little things, Michael. If if every TD, Michael, that went into the Dáil since I went in there, get back the pay raises they got, they would have been given back £8 million. A simple thing, Michael, but it might mean something to the people on their knees. These are choices, Michael. Choices that the ordinary people that's on their knees today haven't are not able to make. These are choices the government can make, Michael. And that's without um, the pay of ministers and senior ministers and junior ministers, you know, Um so things like that, Michael, can make a difference, and they can um, let the ordinary people uh, know that we're in, in some uh, reality with them, you know. <clears throat> so I don't know, Michael, that uh, we can't we can't pay for everything. The government can't pay for everything, Michael, but we have to. Um, um, you know, come up with a few billion now, Michael, to help these people that are on their knees. And I'll tell you one thing, Michael, it would be the best few billion you ever spent because if you don't, you're pushing people into homelessness, you're, p- you're pushing people into mortgage distress, and you're pushing people into into poverty.
8: Okay. And, Michael, that's
10: not me saying that, Michael. You're dealing, Michael. I heard the CEO of a loan on your programme yesterday morning, Michael, Peter McFerry, is saying it. Um, mm. St. Vincent de Paul's. Um, um, uh, there's the, the,
3: no disputing it. I mean, there's no. Uh, I, I, I suppose the question is what's the way around it?
10: Well, the way around it Michael is what Eamon Ryan said today in today's paper is is come up with another package of measures Michael but it, it needs to be done today we can't wait weeks sort of Michael and the people mm. can't wait weeks so i tell you now Michael um, people calling me on the phone yesterday Michael and I'll tell you one thing that breaking point okay. like, all, you know a- almost crying on the phone Michael mm. and, uh, and and, the, the, yeah, and you, I wouldn't tell them Michael if you told them the truth Michael I'll tell you that you would push them over the line
3: Are, are you concerned about uh, the idea of tents in Gormanston? by the way?
10: Well, Michael, um, I, like, I don't know um, whether they will or they won't be, but, um, you know, we have to do our best for these people that that are, are, are coming into the country. Like, mm. when, um, the Irish people left this country in the 80s, including myself, Michael, and we were glad for somewhere to go, you know, so it's a war situation, Michael. Um, you know, we, we three, know we're under
3: 320 housing units. Uh, you'd imagine there'd be at least two in each house, tent, um, and possibly three, five, I don't know. Um, God, no! I don't know how many uh, people these tents would accommodate, but you're you're talking probably in around a thousand people, if not a lot more. Uh, women and children living in a field. Uh, what kind of security would there be for them?
10: Well, it wouldn't be good, Michael. It wouldn't be good, and we hope it won't happen, Michael. And um, I I don't know whether it will or not, but uh, I know myself, Michael, and there was, there was four different people calling me up um, offering their houses to people coming in from uh, from Ukraine, and um, they, I got them in touch with them. Uh, with the Red Cross, you know, and mm. that. But um, it's it, it's hard to know, Michael, i say, if um if the war ended a bit quicker, you know, maybe so many people mightn't come to the country or maybe people will go back, you know. It's mm. it's hard to judge it. You can have to judge it week by week.
3: You know? Yeah, the mind boggles, there's no doubt. Johnny, thanks for talking to us this morning. Good to talk to you. That's uh, Johnny Gorkshin, Fain TD, for Meath West. Now, let's hear a little bit more about uh, the energy crisis, not just here, but also in the United States.
11: The fact is, he's causing thousands of deaths, and untold, Destruction. Working with our NATO allies and our European partners and beyond that, we, uh, we're responding. We're aiding the Ukrainian people, both economically and militarily, while leaving the most punishing economic sanctions against Russia ever used against another nation in place and increasing them. <clears throat> Thus far, these actions are crippling Russia's economy, isolating Putin from the world and helping Ukrainians fight for their country and ease their suffering. But as I've said from the start, Putin's war is imposing a cost on America and our allies and democracies around the world. Today, I want to talk about one aspect of Putin's war that affects and has real effects on American people. Putin's price hike that Americans and our allies are feeling at the pump. I know how much it hurts. As you've heard me say before, I grew up in a family like many of you where the price of a gallon of gasoline went up it was discussion at the kitchen table. Our family budgets, your family budgets, to fill a tank, none of it should hinge on whether a dictator declares war. So today, I'm laying out a two-part plan, not only to ease the pain that families are feeling right now, but to end this era of dependence and uncertainty and to lay a new foundation for true and lasting American energy independence. Parenthetically, just imagine if, in fact, Europe didn't have to count on Russian oil, if they were energy independent. It would change the nature of so much. The problem we're facing with gas prices has two roots. First, the pandemic. When COVID struck, demand for oil plummeted, so production slowed down worldwide. Because of the strength and the speed of our recovery, Demand for oil shot back up much faster than the supply. That's why the cost of gas began to rise last year. The second route is Vladimir Putin. The start of this year, gas was about $3.30 a gallon. Today it's about averaging four twenty, 420, four twenty two. It's higher in many states. Nearly a dollar more in less than three months. The reason for that is because of Putin's war. And now many people are no longer buying Russian oil around the world. I banned the Russian import of oil here in America. Republicans and Democrats in Congress called for it and supported it. It was the right thing to do. But I said at the time, it's going to come with a cost. As Russian oil comes off the global market, supply of oil drops and prices are rising. Now, Putin's price hike is hitting Americans at the pump.
3: American President Joe Biden. Mairead Indraha was in touch with us. She says uh, that uh, Dr. Mary Scully is right. We're all sick of COVID, but at the same time, we need, do we not, to keep this current wave under control uh, instead of putting as much pressure as we are on the hospitals and healthcare settings. It seems straightforward to me, uh, Mairead says, to reintroduce. Uh, mandatory face mask wearing until this current wave passes. Thank you indeed uh, for sharing your thoughts with us. Uh, Another call from Susan, who's in East Mead, who says uh, that Sinn Féin's Johnny Gurk is so right. People are really struggling, especially those who are on low and middle incomes. You have to remember, Michael, that many people are paying through the roof for rent and we're barely making ends meet as it is. Something has to give. We cannot have people not putting on their heat when it's so cold. I've been rationing my own oil, uh, but I had to switch it on last night because it was just so cold and it's just not right, says Susan in Eastmead. Thanks for your call.
6: Michael Reed
3: on LMFM. Well, as you know, Lisa Smith is a woman from Dundalk, a household name at uh, this stage. Former member of the Irish Defence Forces and uh, somebody who spent some time in Syria. As a result, she's uh, being charged with a membership of a terrorist organisation, namely ISIS, and indeed funding that organisation by posting 800 euro to a person in Syria. The trial against Lisa Smith has concluded in the special criminal court. Owen Reynolds, a news reporter working in the criminal courts of justice, has been in court throughout this very long trial. Owen, the trial has ended, but it, it seems that it'll be some time before there will be a, a verdict. Why is that?
12: Well, um, we actually don't even know what the date at the moment is for the verdict. The court is going to reconvene next Thursday, and I suspect they will indicate how long they expect to take to deliver uh, a verdict at that point. But the reason for that, of course, is that um, the Special Criminal Court, unlike the Central Criminal Court or uh, the Circuit Court there's no lay jury, and ordinarily, obviously, a lay jury will come to their decision. But they'll never really—they'll never actually tell you why they came to that decision. They don't have to write out a report or anything. But that's um, in, in this court. There are three judges sitting, and they will act as jurors. And at the end of it, they will provide a very lengthy judgment, explaining why they have come to their verdicts, whatever those verdicts might be. And they do have to go through the evidence really with a fine-tooth comb. Um, You know, it's important that they don't miss out any aspect of the evidence uh, because something like that might be brought up on appeal. And it's also important that they respond to or deal with every argument that's made, either by the barrister for the prosecution or the barrister for the defence in their closing arguments, which they delivered this week. So um, that, that writing a report of that length and, of course, also taking into account the law, the specific uh, act that under which uh, Ms. Smith is charged, going through all of that is obviously going to take quite a long time. So I suspect, now this is really just a guess, but Mm. I suspect it will be at least one month before we get a verdict and possibly quite a bit longer.
3: Right, Okay. that's uh, a considerable length of uh, time uh, and I'm sure it'll uh, be a testing time for uh, all involved. You mentioned uh, the prospect of uh, an appeal. That would be to the Supreme Court. What is it if there is such a scenario?
12: No, um, the... The Special Criminal Court, if it came to that point, and it, it, dealing with other cases, maybe mm. not talking at least Smith yeah. specifically, but other cases where there have been convictions at the Special Criminal Court, they can actually be appealed to the Court of Appeal because the Special Criminal Court is deemed to be on the same level as the Central Criminal Court or the High Court. So the Court of Appeal is the natural place for appeals to go from there.
3: OK. Uh, and as you say, there is no jury. It's uh, three judges uh, who will have heard the evidence over what has been a, a very long trial period. How long is this trial run for?
12: Well, I think from beginning to end, it was just a, a day or two over nine weeks. So that is quite a long time. It was originally slated, though, to take 12 weeks. So they did finish quite a long way within the time frame. And there were one or two relate, uh, delays related to COVID as well, I think, um you know, there might have even been a whole week lost to that. So really it didn't. I suppose they, they definitely finished well within the time frame that was allotted. But there was a lot of evidence It did range from, you know, people who were in, in Syria. We had experts on Middle Eastern conflicts. We had experts on the history of the Islamic State and caliphates. Um, we had people from a mosque in Dundalk. Uh, you know, there was there was a pretty broad ranging, you know, type of evidence, much much more broad ranging than would be the
3: norm, I think, in courts. Oh, absolutely, and very strange, and a long way from uh, Dundalk in every sense. Uh, I would imagine. Uh, you mentioned caliphate, uh, and that was uh, an important part of uh, the defence, was it not?
12: yeah so the, the, just to just to give a a little brief overview of what the prosecution and the defense are saying the prosecution are saying that miss smith traveled there um to as as an, as an act of allegiance to this um Islamic State organization which was run by the terrorist leader Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi who in 2015 sent out a call to all Muslims to come and travel to this Islamic State and he said that it was their obligation to travel there and so the prosecution is saying that by doing that she was answering a call from this terrorist leader and that she was providing essentially the lifeblood of this organization because they needed people to travel there to build the state, to achieve their aims, to build the state that they were trying to build. Now Ms. Smith, uh, during lengthy interviews with Gardy in 2019 and through her counsel during the trial, has repeatedly stated that she travelled there simply as a religious obligation because she, she was convinced by various other people, various actors, that um, it was her religious obligation to go there and that to fail in that obligation would result in her burning in hell for eternity. And, you know, her her barrister, Michael O'Higgins, her senior counsel, in his closing speech, did reminded the court that a belief like that wouldn't be unfamiliar to people. Probably anyone in Ireland over the age of 40, that it shouldn't really be surprising that somebody might have that level of fervent belief in something um, like hellfire. Mm. So, you know, that's 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 her response to it. It's simply that she was answering this religious obligation and, um, you know, that she was very fearful of the consequences of not doing
3: so. And in many ways indicates how far away the story that we're talking about is from Dundalk and the lives that most of us live in this country. And that's why international experts were brought in on, on both sides. Uh, from the prosecution's viewpoint, their expert was saying that anybody who travelled to Syria or any ISIS-controlled territory uh were, in fact, a member of a terrorist organisation, namely ISIS.
12: Yeah, that was Dr. Florence Gob, a, a German professor. She works with the UN and various different uh, international organisations, and she described herself as a, an expert on Middle Eastern conflicts and an, an expert on ISIS. And yeah, she said that this, <coughs> this journey, which uh, the Islamic or Arabic word for it is Hijra, And she says that within the within ISIS and within people who are interested in ISIS, this journey or this hijra was seen as the specific act of allegiance that, that made you a member of ISIS, and that if you did that and then you arrived in the States, she said you would receive preferential treatment from ISIS in that you would get better accommodation, you might be provided with some funds, you might get better food. Uh, she even said that people who made that journey would guess access to the internet that others wouldn't guess, maybe people who are who are just uh, you know the Syrians themselves wouldn't guess so she said because you are entering into that kind of reciprocal relationship and in 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 return you know you didn't necessarily need to be a fighter, she said you could you were providing the building blocks the foundation stones for state building for building that state, even you know if you were working as a essentially as Lisa Smith says she was. Um, a housewife providing a home for your husband. Mm. Um, Dr. Gobb said that even, even something like that was fundamental, of fundamental importance to the creation of this state, and therefore you're in a reciprocal relationship with the state, and therefore you're a member of ISIS. Now, Lisa Smith's defence lawyers have taken that head on, and they, um, first of all, Michael O'Higgins questioned the methodology of Dr. Gob and her expertise he pointed out that she had never been to Syria during the during the conflict, and also that she didn't she never spoke to anyone directly. All of her sources were second and third hand, and he questioned how she was able to come to some of the decisions that she came to, how she could say, say that somebody providing, a, a, you know, a dutiful wife, say, doing the cooking and the cleaning and things like that that were expected of women in the Islamic State, how that could be equated with actually being a member of a terrorist organization. He said that that wouldn't fly if you were trying to accuse a person of being a member of the IRA because they had provided a a good home for their husband or something like that. He said, you know, that wouldn't fly in an Irish court and and this shouldn't be allowed either.
3: Okay, well, you've uh, covered countless amount of court cases over many years at this stage, Owen. You're a a most experienced court reporter. Uh, How would you rank this uh, in terms of how usual it is? Uh, Or to put that another way, would you say it's one of the more unusual cases that you've had to cover?
12: Um, Well, It certainly is one of the more unusual cases that I've had to cover. I suppose just to give a flavour of that, we've had during the trial um, former jihadist uh, Tanya Joya give evidence. And Miss Joya spoke about how she was radicalised whilst growing up in the UK how she became, you know, confronted with the uh, the English Defense League and ended up joining up with the Islamists as a kind of a response to that. She then married an American convert to Islam named John Georgilis and found herself in Syria all the way back in 2006 when a caliphate was announced. And she said that, like Lisa Smith in 2013, at that time, Tanya Joya believed very fervently that if she did not join in with this caliphate, that um, she would burn for eternity in hell. And but then she also spoke of how she started, you know, reading secular voices, and she stumbled across the odd secular comment or essay here, here and there, and it changed her mind. She kind of she she deprogrammed herself or de-radicalized herself over a, a number of years, and also out of concern for her children. She was in, you know, Syria in or Syria and Egypt in twenty thirteen. In 2012, you know, her children came in at times, and they were carrying, uh, in, in one in in one instance, carrying a live weapon, a mm. two or three-year-old child. So things like that happened to her. It just kind of woke her up out of the the um, the radicalization or the indoctrination that she felt she had mm. been subjected to over many years so things like that you mm. know it, it's it's been a, a wide-ranging you know, already that's,
3: that's a spine-tingling sort of story uh, in a frightening sense uh, and that's very very strange uh, almost like a, a hearing uh, the uh, script for a movie or something like that it, it's a million mm. miles away from the world uh, we live in what about Lisa Smith uh, throughout this uh Has she had friends and supporters with her or has she been a lone figure in the court?
12: Um, I haven't noticed anyone with Miss Smith. Obviously, she speaks to her lawyers every day, but um, I haven't noticed any friends or family there with her. There might be various reasons for that. They probably don't want to be, you know, there are television cameras there every day. There's photographers there at the front door every day. Some people just don't like to be confronted with that and that's perfectly understandable, you know. Mm. Um, But, uh, yeah, I mean, she, she she has uh, sat attentively throughout the whole trial and and um, yeah there's 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 not really much more to say on that I suppose.
3: Okay, well as you say, uh, it'll be mentioned again next Thursday, uh, but you estimate that it'll be a month or perhaps more than that before the verdict is delivered
12: that would be my yeah I would expect no, I, don't I, don't, I don't expect them to rush in with a verdict any time
3: so. very good ok um, thank you very much indeed uh, for joining us much appreciated thanks Mark that's yeah. Owen Reynolds news reporter working in the criminal courts of justice Michael, Michael Reed on LMFM Thanks uh, to David who's in Drogheda texting or calling the programme today actually. He says uh, they're talking about possibly having to ration fuel but how is that going to work for people who need to put petrol and diesel in our cars to go to work? It's a worry as many don't have any option uh, and don't have the option to work from home. Thanks uh, David. Uh, some people will remind you of the days when there wasn't fuel uh, and there was so little fuel that you'd big, long queues of cars outside of petrol stations trying to get fuel in the 1970s. It can happen. It could happen. Let's hope it doesn't happen. Jim Navin says that the doctors and the nurses worked tirelessly uh, during dark days of COVID to help all of us. It's time for the government and the Irish people to respect them now and start wearing masks again until things improve. Action is better than platitudes, says Jim. Thank you indeed. I certainly will be wearing my mask and I hope everybody will uh, if uh, they're in crowded situations. James Androhada says, failing to prepare is preparing to fail. Uh, Claire and mead in touch a lot in Claire's mind today. She says, listening to your programme, I'm stunned about uh, how people can't afford to live now and we're planning to bring in 200,000 refugees. How is this possible? She says, did we stop using electricity during COVID? No, we ended up using more. Look at the profits of the ESB. And she also says her blood is boiling. She wants to know what's wrong with the government ministers about masks. They work. Why are they not helping the hospital staff and making mask-wearing compulsory? Do they ever visit a public hospital? Do they ever visit an emergency department? I don't think so, she says. Please ask these questions, says Claire in County Mead in her messages to us this morning. And thank you indeed uh, for getting in touch with us today. There are an awful lot of challenges ahead of us. There is no doubt about that. And
4: and it's not Energy now—it's also potential costs and food. There are other reasons, supply chain issues coming out of COVID, but the war in Ukraine and what Russia is doing is central to the cost of living issue. I make that point because I believe in addressing both that cost of living issue and the housing crisis. We need to use this moment of real emergency to effect change in both that will help address both. So, when we're addressing the housing crisis. We now have to house some 700 people coming a day that we have to give sanctuary to, like every other European country, in my mind correctly. Well, can we do that in a way which really doubles down and accelerates what we need to do for our own people anyway, in tackling vacant sites, in opening up new rental streams, in actually building really quickly? Can we use this emergency to actually provide solutions that are not just good... For those Ukrainian families that we have to help and protect, but also Irish families. And I believe we can. I believe in a moment of emergency like this, you have to act fast and you have to be bold. And the solutions for the Romanian refugee issue, the Ukrainian refugee issue, will help us domestically as well I believe that's what we should aim to do
3: Okay well let's hope that he's right or somewhere near right uh, that's Eamon Ryan uh, the minister speaking in uh, the doll yesterday now thanks to Antoinette who says she wants to object to the interview earlier with Nula O'Hagan eating the meat of an animal is not vegetarian she says even if you don't kill the animal uh, Antoinette says I've been vegetarian for 35 years and I can't believe the cop out that's being suggested here it's definitely not vegetarian well, thanks, Antoinette, uh, for your call. Thanks, to to Maura, uh, who was texting us and she said, that lamb story has to be an April Fool's story. Good one, Maura says. Well, thanks uh, for spotting that for us, Moira. Quite a, a lot of people. I think most people uh, knew that it was an April Fool's story today. It is the 1st of April uh, and uh, we thought uh, we'd lighten things up a, a little bit with that. We hope that you enjoyed it. I think Christine did. She said, top of the morning to you, Michael. Tom and Lloyd says, Michael, you won't pull the wool over my eyes, April Fool. And we leave the last word with Pat McDade in Drogheda who says, does that woman farmer live on Mutton Island or maybe Land Bay Happy April 1st everyone Legless with laughing here says Pat McDade Thank you indeed for getting in touch That's our programme for this week, God willing we'll see you for our next programme on Monday morning at 9am right here on LMFM, good morning, bye bye
2: The Michael Reid Show podcast Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM, to contact us email now michael at lmfm.ie